Oh, Father, thank you so much that you, um, you are faithful and you are good. And because you are faithful and you are good and you are generous, we can be faithful, good, and generous. And so thank you uh, that we are able to give of our time, our attention, and our resources and give into the kingdom and into this body. And I just pray that uh, you would bless us as we give. And I also pray you'd bless those who are responsible for um, directing that time, energy, uh, and resource, directing that for your purposes. I pray you give us all wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, man. So um, this message might be a little bit of a repeat, both because Charlie spoke a very similar message a couple weeks ago, and also because this is a message that we've shared in bits and pieces for years now. It is actually something that is important and core to our belief about ourselves. Uh, I don't really have a title, but the working title I have was um, Foundations Sin. Because <laughs> it just, for the part that when it came to me, it was like, this is so foundational. Um, there's a couple um, things that if a new believer came to me and said, I just got saved. I just got my Bible. What do I need to read? There's, you know, the first answer is the Bible, all of it. Go. Uh, the second answer might be, oh, here's this book or this book. But there's chapters in the Bible um, that are so, for me, so powerful that if I had to reduce things, you know, if somebody said, what should I read? What's the most important thing to read? I would give them a couple chapters just off the top of my head. Ephesians 2, super important, or no, sorry, Ephesians 1, super important chapter. Just read what Paul says about who we are. <laughs> it's amazing. But another one would be to explain the whole thing of what just happened to them. If somebody said, I just got saved, I got my Bible, what do I need to read? I would say, go read Romans 6 all the way through. Just read, it's quick chapter, read the whole thing, and then we can talk about it, because that will explain exactly what just happened to you, and exactly where you are right now, and how you can move forward. It's foundational. I joked with my wife, and I said, I'm speaking on um, sin today, something I'm an expert in, so I'm very qualified. So I'm, I'm going to be speaking about sin, and what, what started this is I actually spoke at Berean last week for the last time because next week is their final service as a church. And I remember asking the Lord, okay, Father, what can I share? How can I, how can I um, give them hope in this time? Because it is a necessary step, and it is a step that I think is in the will of God, but it's still a painful step for that church. And so, Lord, how can I bring some encouragement? What can I, what can I, what can I share? And the Lord actually gave me a message called uh, More Than a Building, and it was sharing with them the fact that church isn't the four walls. Church isn't a building. Church is a person. It's them, that they're the temple of God. They're the dwelling place of God. And I was sharing that with them. And I said, so as long as you are still here, Berean church is still here. And I also got to share that when Alyssa and I step in to senior leadership here, the legacy of Berean Church continues even through here because Alyssa was raised there and I attended there. 
But one of the things I said to them is I said, we have to get rid of some Old Testament thinking because they are raised in their traditional and, and they're raised in the church. And one of the concepts that we get in the church is the church is the building. You know, people ask me, like, I, I leave in the morning and my kids go, bye, dad, dad, bye, dad, dad. Where are you going? Church? You know, this morning they're like, where are we going? Church? And so we get that mindset locked in. That, and, and it makes sense. You look at the Old Testament and the Old Testament talks about the tabernacle. That's super important. It talks about the temple. That's super important. And there's a reason for that. And I was sharing with them, there's a reason for that. But... It was never the plan. It was a plan on the way to the plan, which was to make us temples. So we need to get rid of that Old Testament thinking. And that term, Old Testament thinking, just kept on getting stuck in my head. Because it was like, where are these places of old thinking that we get stuck in? And so then when I was sharing and I was asking, you know, praying with the Lord, saying, what do you want me to speak on? And he, and he took me to Romans 6 and we started, I read Romans 6 and I started talking about it. The thing that I want to start addressing and attacking this morning is some old thinking. Because of, I genuinely think the church has a really mixed up idea about sin. Really mixed up. And I want to start correcting our perception of sin. Because if we have a correct perception of sin, we can actually address it in our lives more effectively. We can communicate about it, about it more effectively. And the starting place, I think, is some of the concepts in Romans 6. We need to reground ourselves in what the Bible says. Because so much of our Christian understanding comes from a, the accumulation of sermons and teachings that we've heard and theologies that we've learned. And sometimes we, we know Christian truths, but we actually don't know where they are in the Bible. And so often, sometimes, good intentioned deception comes in or confusion comes in because we never grounded what we got taught in the word. I'm kind of funny, I'm kind of a stickler about this and it shows up in some silly ways. For instance, my children never learned that David killed Goliath with a stone because that's not what happened according to me and how I read the Bible. So when I taught them that story, I said, he knocked him out with a stone, and he went and got his sword, and he chopped his head off. That's what killed Goliath. Because we learn these Bible stories, and a lot of the times, they've been denatured and denudered and uh, desensitized for our children. Because the Bible is actually about real people and real things, and there's struggle, and there's blood, and there's uh, incest, and there's... Uh, uh, there's lust and, and adultery and all sorts of terrible things. So we desensitize it for our children sometimes, but then sometimes our children grow up and they actually never really learn the full story. Okay. And so often we do that. And my own exploration, I, I can, you know, sit down with you, and, and I'm a theology head. I love theology. I love hearing about all these, these theories of God because I love learning about God. I love learning how people perceive God. And I can tell you my own theological journey, and I can go, when I was in high school, I was a Calvinist because the people that taught me were Calvinists. The most important attribute of God is his glory, and that's what he's about. 
well, why does God let, allow this to happen? And why does God allow that to happen? Because it increases his glory. And if I don't understand it, it's because I'm a human and I'm not meant to understand it. What the heck? That was, <laughs> it's right here. <laughs> it, exactly. <laughs> and then I started doing my own research about Calvinism. And I stopped just regurgitating what my teachers were teaching me. I started looking into it, and I realized I actually don't agree with Calvinism. I stopped being a Calvinist. I actually don't think the chief attribute of God is his glory. I don't think he's all about his glory. I think his chief attribute is love. I think he's all about love. So how does, how does God allow things to happen? So my, my response changed from, well, it's about his glory, and if you don't understand it, it's because you're human, because who can know God? And it changed into, God is all about love, and the chief expression of love is to give someone choice, because when I take someone's choice away, I'm not showing love. So God gives us choice. That's how bad things happen, because he loves us. Weird. Yeah. So, because I started doing my own work, so it's so important that we come back and we, we start grounding ourselves in the word and we start doing the work sometimes. And when we learn something new, the Lord told me once, every new revelation, when you get a new revelation of God, every old revelation has to orient itself to that new revelation. And if something's off, I have to determine, was that old revelation wrong? Or does it change? Or do I need to alter that conviction that I created? to match this new one or is my, the new revelation I'm being told, is that off? And it's this process that we engage in as Christians. But, but so many times I think we just kind of add another layer. We just add another layer. I learned this and then I learned this and instead of, you know, I learned that this was true and now I'm thinking this is true and instead of working it out, I just put one on top of the other. And then we have these ambushes these situations come up in our lives and we start realizing, I'm reacting differently than I believe. Why? And you find, oh, I actually had a different belief buried under there that I'm still holding on to that I need to resolve. And I think our concept of sin has that. We have a lot of different beliefs around sin and we have a lot of mixed up teachings and we have a lot of historical teachings that get brought forward and, and then we learn these new things and, then, and instead of kind of looking at it and going, okay, let's look at sin, we just kind of, whatever's in the moment. So I want to talk about that. Now, this is my opinion. This is what I believe when I read the Bible. So you don't have to agree with me and I'm not going to be offended if you don't. I still think there's some principles here that'll be really good. So first, let's define sin. There's, there's two ways to think about sin. There's two ways to look at sin. First, there's the actual verb, sinning, the sins, right? So there's the actual verb, I have sinned. And when you think about that, when you look at the words used for that, the Bible's really clear. In the Greek, the simplest one is missing the mark. 
aiming for something, missing the mark, that's a sin. The Hebrew idea is even more specific. It's transgression. You see, the Hebrews had the concept. They had the law. So their sin was clearly marked. Here's the law. If I transgress against the law, I will have sinned. It's very simple. The Greek definition made it way more uh, vague. And even, and that was the point. You see, when Jesus came and he said, oh, you, don't, you think because you've never physically committed adultery, you haven't sinned. But I tell you, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery, you've sinned. So, you know, the whole, the whole um, definition expanded when, when Jesus came. Because he came to show how impossible it was to live under the law. So there's that. Then there's the state of being sin, which we hear a lot. The sin nature. Right? A lot of times when the, you know, Charlie had shared this when he was speaking on this, that different translators have tried to differentiate when the Bible's talking about our sin nature. And so they've used the word flesh or they've inserted sin nature. It's interesting, NSAB really, for the most part, just says sin. <laughs> they just use w the word sin. And they don't try and throw in other words. So you have to try and from context, is he talking about a sin or is he talking about sin in general, the concept, the state of being? I want to tell you guys something. I've said this before in different ways, and it's very interesting hearing Christians react to this. Sin is external. Sin is external. It's not internal for a believer. I just want you to sit with that. I don't need to say anything. I just want you to be aware of how you reacted to that. Did you go, that's not true? Did you go, wait, what? Did you go, I don't know if I agree with that. That's fine. But I just want you to think about your response. When I say sin, for a believer, sin is external. It is not internal. So I want you to sit with that. Let's dive into the Bible, shall we? I'll just start. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's referencing chapter 8, which is a great chapter where he is beginning these concepts and it ends with, so if I sin, if grace is so great and grace is because of sin, I should sin more so grace abounds. And he's immediately responding in chapter 6, no don't do that. That's not what I meant. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So for you, as a Christian who has accepted Jesus, sin, you have died to it. 
it is dead to you. That's why it's no longer internal. You don't have a sin nature. You don't have an old man. Sin is no longer internal. You see, sin was internal before we were saved. You see, that's why Paul earlier in Romans says, the things that I do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. He is talking about before Jesus, I couldn't help it. Sin was internal before Jesus, but Jesus came and when we accept him into our heart, we share in the likeness of his death, so we die to sin, and we share in the likeness of his resurrection into new life. The word likeness literally means a copy of. It's not, we have something similar. We have the same thing that happened to Jesus happen to us because we have him in us and we take part in it. Continuing, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for the one who has died is freed from sin. Verse 7, for the one who has died is freed from sin. Who's died? Exactly. Apparently. I'll say this again. Let me try it again. Who has accepted Jesus into your life? Okay. Then let me say it this way. Who has shared in his death? Okay. We've all died. For the one who has died is free from sin. Oh, wait, Miko. Are you saying I don't sin anymore? No. I'm not saying that. But Miko, I struggle with my old man. You don't understand. I struggle with sin still. No, you don't. You don't struggle with sin because actually sin is dead. You don't struggle with sin. You struggle with temptation. Now let me give you something that I think this is another thing I think Christians get a lot of mixed up. Temptation is not sin. Say that. Temptation is not sin. We tend to think it is, and we beat ourselves up for it. Oh, I really wanted to lie right then. Oh, why am I such a bad person? Oh, I saw that girl, and she was pretty, and I really wanted to go further in my head with that. I really wanted to steal that. I'm such a bad person. No, you're not. You're a person, not a bad person. You see, temptation is common. Temptation is common to all men. There's only one perfect being, only one perfect human. His name was Jesus. And you know what? He was tempted. And there's another thing I find, and it always shocks me, that Christians, we get these weird things in our head. 
he wasn't just tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. That wasn't his time of temptation and he passed and he never experienced temptation. I guarantee you. In fact, if you read the story about the Garden of Gethsemane, I guarantee you he was struggling with temptation to the point that he bled because he didn't want to go to the cross. Not my will, but yours. Meaning he was struggling because his will said, don't do it. I don't want to do it. And he submitted to the Lord. See, he wasn't sinning when he was dealing with that temptation. Temptation is not sin. So when you feel like I'm struggling with my old man, I'm having a fight with my old man, my sin nature is still here. No, you aren't. You're struggling with temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, let me give you some hope. It says that we are not tempted more than we can bear. That's actually really important distinction. That should give you hope every time you're tempted because there's always an out. You see, sin we are powerless against. We can't do a thing against sin. That's why Jesus had to die. But temptation, he never gives us more than we can bear, ever. That's a promise. So we know with temptation, there's always hope. There's always a way to resist. We just have to find it. We just have to look for it. Continuing in chapter 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you, too, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. See, that's the temptation part. You're not struggling with sin in that moment when you're being tempted. You're struggling with the lust that sin brings. So the first thing we need to understand about sin is, for us, it is external. It is not an internal battle. It is external. What I mean is, I'm not fighting against my nature to not sin. I'm not fighting my nature to not sin. See, we have this idea sometimes that God came in and he gave us a new heart, but he left the bad one, and now there's this battle waging in us, and it's 50-50, and I'm the deciding vote, and sometimes I go this way, and sometimes I go this way, but I'm a split being, and, and I'm just not there yet, and one day I'll get there. No, that's all made up. That's all made up. You won't find that in the Bible. How many of you guys know I'm a sinner saved by grace? Wrong. That's not in the Bible. I was a sinner. I was a sinner. I was saved by grace. I am now a saint. Saint is all over the Bible. I'm constantly called a saint, a child of God, a dwelling place of the Lord, living stones, a servant of God. 
I'm not called a sinner. Biblically. I don't have an old nature that's constantly battling my new nature. That's not how it works. I had an old nature. I have a new nature now. Well, Miko, I sin. Of course. God loves us so much he gives us choice. He'll never take away your ability to sin. But it's not about I'm fighting myself. No, I'm not. Because sin isn't internal to me. My nature is good. My nature is just. I have a righteous nature. Well, Miko, I have sin patterns. I have struggles. Yeah, I get it. I get it. That's why we crucify our flesh. In Galatians, Paul says you crucify your flesh. That's where I work out the temptation. That's where sanctification happens. Me working out how to process the temptation. Why am I being tempted in this way? What is the pressure for me to sin? Let's continue. 13, and do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your body parts as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. There it is. When I sin, I am not resurrecting an old nature. I am not turning back to the old nature in me. I'm actually just going to sin and presenting myself and saying, use me. Because it's external. I am presenting myself to sin. Use me as an instrument of unrighteousness. So what's the solution, Miko? I present myself to God. And I say, use me as an instrument of righteousness. Well, how do I do that, Miko? Everything you've been doing. Seek his face. Read your word. Worship him. Be in community. Constantly. My, my mom says it this way. Be present. Understand what's going on. Have you ever had a moment where you just realized the motivation that you're having in a moment? This week, for whatever reason, I was just attacked with anxiety for one morning. Just, I mean, not panic attack, but I would just get this wave of anxiety. My pulse would start to race. I'd just be like, something's, I need to do something. What's going on? Something's wrong. And it took me a bit, but eventually I just realized I stopped and I was present with it. And I said, what is this attached to? And I did an inventory and I realized I'm not anxious about anything. This isn't attached to work that I'm supposed to get done. Like I literally, I reviewed my to-do list. Did I, am I missing something? Am, is something? Is there something coming up that's, no, what is going on? And because I was present in the moment, I realized this wasn't internal. I wasn't feeling anxious from something that I was supposed to be doing. This was external. 
So I just said, Lord, if this is not from me, if this is from anything else, I just say no in Jesus' name. I declare peace over me, peace over my family. If there's any concern or worry or fear that I'm having because of my family, Lord, be with them. And within five minutes, it lifted, and I didn't deal with it. It was gone. It was just like, ah. Oh. But what it was is just living my life but being present, not just, not just passive. I wasn't just passive. I was being present, and I took agency to go, something's going on. That's what we all do. Every time we have a growth spurt, it's because we took agency, and we pressed into something. God told us something, and we said yes, and we held on to it. So how do I present myself as, as an instrument of righteousness? I turn to the Lord and say, you can have my heart. Here it is. I think that's why all this twisted understanding of sin and sin nature, it, it crept into the church because the enemy knows that if I can just get you to think that you're dirty and disgusting and filthy, you won't go to God. You will more easily present yourself as a servant of unrighteousness, as an instrument of unrighteousness, because that's what you are. But if you actually understand and internalize, sin is not internal to me. Sin is an external thing that I deal with. I don't even deal with it. I just submit to it sometimes. But because Jesus died, I easily go, not going to do that again. Going to choose not to do that again. I don't have to go through some rigmarole where I have to find the perfect, perfect calf that has no blemish and pay for it and then take it. I don't have to do any of that. I just have to go, I was going this direction. I was presenting myself as an instrument of unrighteousness. And you know what? Because of the sacrifice Jesus made, I just get to do this. And now I'm presenting myself as an instrument of righteousness because I'm actually good. It goes more than he gave me choice. It's because he made me good. Because if you don't have Jesus, you can't do that. What's a sinner and a saint? A saint is good and has the ability to do this. A sinner doesn't. A sinner is locked in one way. So this is the new reality that I, buried with Christ, my sin nature was buried with Christ. He shoved it in the deepest hole of hell, and when he rose, he gave me newness of, a newness of life that I walk in. I'm under grace, which is the empowerment to choose. Grace is the empowerment to choose. A sinner doesn't have that. I'm no, I'm no longer under the law, which is a condemnation. It is a sentence of death. Verse 16, do you not know that the one who, to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I put it this way. Most Christians have an understanding of sin and salvation like this. 
I'm at the bottom of a hill, and I have to push a rock up to the top. And when I get there, I'll be there. I'll have made it. I'll be perfect. But until then, I'm pushing this rock up this hill. And if I slip, the rock comes tumbling all the way back. And I have to go back down, and I have to pick up that rock, and I have to carry it, I have to roll it all the way back to the top. That's most Christians' view of salvation. The salvation is God gave me the ability to pick that rock up. And now i got to carry it up to the top. And that's not true. The biblical view of salvation is God saved you, he picked you up, and he put you on top of that mountain. Now, we're silly, and we jump off all the time. But do you know what he does? When we turn back to him, when we repent, he picks us up, and he puts us back on top of the mountain. We start from victory. There is no perfection. Christians, we think we need to be perfect, and then we have this idea of sin that prevents it. There's no idea. There's no perfection. Jesus was perfect. After that, there's nobody. But you know what we are? We're justified. You see, we're not perfect. We're justified, which means Jesus takes his perfection and gives it to us and puts us on top of the mountain. And then we engage in a process called sanctification of continually turning to him in obedience. Because what happens is we stop throwing ourselves off the mountain as much. We start realizing there's an edge and there's not a guardrail. And that's called sanctification. And we spend longer and longer on top of the mountain. And when we, we know people that spend more time on top of the mountain, it seems, than on the bottom. And we call those really holy people. verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a whole bunch of stuff the church just just tradition and teachings just get muddied and mixed. A lot of Christians think Satan is undefeated, that he's an equal of God, that there's battle raging, and we don't know who's going to win. It's 50-50. That's a lie. Satan's defeated. He was defeated from the beginning. We know who wins. It's not a war. Because it's one. Sin is the same way. We think of sin as this big, evil, lurking thing that has a life of its own that, that we can get infected by, that, that can snatch us unaware. And Sin is defeated. Sin is defeated. And we stepped into the victory when we accepted Jesus into our lives. Sin is external. And I just turn away from it and I face God. And when I do that, he empowers me to crucify my flesh 
to deal with the temptation. But I don't have a sin problem. I have a temptation problem. Which means that when I'm interacting with people, I'm not worried about them. I don't know how many times I've heard a Christian talk about, oh, you got to be careful about that person because they act like sin is something that can jump off of them onto, like it's a sickness that if I just get close enough, I'll just, they'll breathe on me and suddenly I'm infected again. Sin becomes this wall between connection and relationship and it, it, it doesn't exist. We allow it to exist when it doesn't exist. That's why if a new believer came to me and said, what do I need to read? I would say, read Romans 6. Understand exactly what has just been defeated in your life. Understand exactly the place you're beginning from. Can you imagine if every new believer got told, you are now victorious over the sin in your life, and now we just are going to handle the temptations you deal with, but trust me, God never gives you more than you can bear. And we actually give Christians a starting place at the top of the mountain, not the bottom. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. I think it'd be amazing if every Christian realized, I start at the top. I start at the top, and he's given me every tool and every resource to stay there. And when I don't, he picks me up and puts me right back there. Amen? Amen.